Bible and let's turn to Zechariah chapter 9. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it meets us where we are in our sin and in our suffering and then gives us hope in God. And I I trust that this passage will do that for you today. Um, We have observed that Israel, to some extent, remains scattered among the nations. They're surrounded by enemy oppressors still lingering after the exile. And all of this is ultimately due to sin. But here God promises a new day of restoration. And already chapter 9 has shown us a a few glimpses of what this new day entails. God will come and defeat His enemies... Uh, others he will save and gather into his presence. He will even give them a new king, we saw last week, uh, who is righteous. One who would fulfill the covenant that they so often broke. And because of his obedience, God would then be pleased to bring peace to the nations and cover the earth with his rule. Verses 12 to 17 this morning are going to take us further, uh, further into God's work to save his people This time by showing us several things that his people will share in uh, when he brings this final day of victory. So let's read together of these things in verses 12 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow... I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young women flourish and new wine. Uh, The young men flourish and new wine the young women. Father, we need your help in understanding this word, and we need your help in uh, seeing what it means for us today. A prophecy written so long ago uh, for your people is, is still speaking uh, to the church today, and we want to understand it, we want to live it, we want to soak in it this morning, and we need your Holy Spirit's help in doing this. Um, so... Uh, Bring that now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it look like when God's people share in God's glory? What does it look like? Share in God's victory. What does it look like when God's people share in God's victory? That's the main question I want to answer this morning from our passage And I see here at least four answers to that question. 
First of all, when God's people share in God's victory, they experience His protection. We see this initially at the beginning of verse 12 when it says, Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Isn't it great that he doesn't just call them prisoners? Prisoners of hope. It's It's a title full of promise. Their chains won't bind them forever. God will snap them, and when he does, they'll have freedom to return to their stronghold. This stronghold could be the new restored Jerusalem, or Zion, uh, that God was building. We've, got a, we've gotten a lot about this, this new temple city in chapter 2 and chapter 8. And also in chapter 2, verse 7, a, a call goes out to the people to escape from Babylon to Zion. But the stronghold could also refer to the Lord himself. In this case, I don't think we have to choose between one and the other. Because the new Zion is the Lord's dwelling. To return to Zion is to return to the Lord. The Lord in Zion is their stronghold. And we get the same connection earlier in Israel's history uh, with King David. When King David takes the, uh, the stronghold of Zion, uh, but, but as time goes on, it's the Lord himself that eventually becomes David's stronghold. So that's one way we see that God's people uh, experience his protection. God is their stronghold. He is their place of security here. We also see that his people experience his protection in battle. Uh, I'll come back to this, uh, to verse 13 in a moment. But for now, I want you to look ahead to the depiction of God as a victorious warrior in verse 14. And and then let's see what that means for his people at the beginning of verse 15. It says, The Lord will appear over them, and his arrows will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. This is a description of God as a warrior. God himself is invisible. But at certain points, he chose to pull back the veil, so to speak, to to reveal his glory, to to make his glory visible in human categories. One of the ways he does this is by revealing himself as an unstoppable and fierce warrior against his enemies. And each of these images are building on those uh, occasions of prior revelation in, in Scripture. The arrow-like lightning, for example. That's taken from places like 2 Samuel 22, verses 8 to 15, when God shows up as a warrior. And it says, The heavens tremble and quake at His anger. Smoke goes up from His nostrils and devouring fire from His mouth. Thick darkness is under His feet as He rides on a cherub. It says that he thunders from heaven and sends out arrows and and scatters them, lightning, and routs them. Marching in the whirlwind. That's not far from uh, the visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel, uh, who were just a few decades before uh, Ezekiel. 
I mean, uh, uh, Zechariah. Isaiah 66 says, for example, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. That also lines up with the vision of Ezekiel. Uh, of the Lord when he sees the Lord mounted on his throne chariot, uh, coming with a whirlwind, it says, uh, or with a great cloud and, and brightness all around him. And then there's also the trumpet sounding, which we shouldn't reduce to just any old trumpet sound. This is not Keith gently leading us in song on Sunday morning, this, there, there is dread associated with this trumpet blast. Uh, out Mount Sinai, the sound of the Lord's trumpet and the sight of his presence made the people tremble in fear and beg not to go near the mountain. Uh, moreover, this trumpet is usually associated with the coming of the Lord in judgment, such as in Joel chapter 2 and Zephaniah chapter 1. And what's happening here is that all these, all three of these images from prior revelation in Scripture are coming together to describe God as a warrior. Uh, he's, he's like he's mounted on a chariot that's kicking up a mighty whirlwind with a trumpet announcing his arrival. This is an unsettling depiction of God. It flies in the face of a lot of popular teachings that want God to be more palatable to our liking, more comfortable, more tame. But our understanding of God can't be determined by what we or the culture around us says is acceptable or not. Our understanding of God must come from His revelation in Scripture And if God is such a warrior, then this is terrible news for God's enemies. You cannot stand in his way if you are God's enemy. God is a fierce warrior against those who hate him. Habakkuk 3 gives this picture of God going forth uh, in, in battle. And it says that he crushes the head of the wicked, and he lays his enemies bare from thigh to neck with his sword. But this is good news if you belong to God's people. Because all of God's might works to protect you. That's what verse 15 says that he will do for his people. The Lord of hosts will protect them. I think a simple question for us to ask is, do you belong to God's people? Are you certain that you belong to God's people? You're not automatically born into his family. When you come into this world, we're we're all born guilty and as enemies. Here's a test to see if you are God's people. Do you trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation? Do you understand that you are a sinner who have provoked God's wrath and and you are in need of God's grace to save you from God's wrath? 
Have you taken Jesus at his word that he alone is Lord and Savior? And has his lordship changed you? If not, then you are still God's enemy. And you will eventually meet this warrior's wrath. I don't warn you as someone who has it all together. I warn you only as someone who used to be God's enemy too. And I want you to experience the same protection that I have found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that while we were still enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. And I would urge you to trust in him. And God the warrior will use his might to protect you as well. Second, when God's people share in God's victory, they experience his success in battle. They experience his success in battle. Let's go back now to verse 13. It says, For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. We observed this back in verse 10 last week, but notice once again that Judah and Ephraim are now in the hand of this warrior like a bow and arrow. Uh, That means God's people will be a united people once again. At one time they were divided into the northern and the southern kingdoms, uh, but now they would serve a complementary role in the hand of the Almighty as, as, a, uh, as a bow and an arrow. Uh, where, this, uh, where, where there is disunity among the people, there can be no real success in battle. But here, unity would strengthen these people to be used by God in battle. In fact, such unity would characterize all the sons of Zion uh, so that the Lord could wield them like a warrior's sword. We should also remember that verse 10 stated that the Lord would cut off the chariot from Ephraim and cut off the war horse from Jerusalem. Which seems odd because now they're being used in battle. How does that work itself out? How do you go to battle without your chariot and your war horse? The point is that God will create a people who are no longer dependent on their own strength for battle, but on the Lord's strength for battle. God's people are effective in battle only when God is their trust and not man. So God strengthens them for battle with trust in His power and with unity between them. And when this happens, when they're trusting in God and they are united, they succeed in defeating their enemies. Uh, The enemy mentioned here is Greece. How should we think about the mention of Greece? Because Greece isn't even a major uh, nation. It's not even a a powerful, um, among the the leaders of the nations like Babylon and Persia once uh, were. This is an example, I think, of the prophet speaking of the future in categories of the present, of their present experience 
and what we find, if you look back in Ezekiel 27, verse 13, it says that Javan, which is the same Hebrew word here behind Greece, Javan or Yavan is uh, translated Greece throughout the Old Testament usually. Occasionally they leave it Javan like it does in Ezekiel 27, 13. We learn there, though, that Javan traded with the city of Tyre, and it says specifically that they exchanged human beings for their merchandise. Tyre was selling Israelites into slavery in Greece for merchandise. We get the same thing in Joel chapter 3, verse 6. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. So Israel is experiencing some level of oppression from Greece, even if Greece isn't all that powerful just yet. But this prophecy seems to be saying that Greece will be quite powerful in a future day. And even then, they still won't be able to withstand God's people. This is exactly what Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 expect to happen. The kingdom of Greece would in fact rise. They would stomp out the Persians and uh, eventually this would, be, uh, this would lead to Alexander the Great and his successors dominating Israel till about 165 BC with the Maccabean Revolt. But even then, if you go back and read Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11, and you see uh, this, what you see is this pattern of kingdoms that appears. There's four kingdoms, and each of them have a lot of similar characteristics, and each one gets worse and worse and worse. The way Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 handle Greece is by making Greece to be just one nation in a long successive pattern of nations who oppose God and oppress God's people. And this pattern of oppressive and rebellious nations ultimately anticipates a culmination of evil in the last days just before the Messiah establishes his reign on earth. This helps us understand Zechariah's prophecy about Greece. Greece is an oppressor of God's people in Zechariah's day, but Greece also stands as a type. That means Greece foreshadows a final conflict when God's enemies will gather against his people on the last day and God will finally defeat them. God will go forth as their warrior to give his people success in battle. That's why they're promised a great victory in verse 15. You get this picture of them eating and drinking and celebration over their enemies. Uh, it says, they shall eat uh, or devour in, in the ESV. They shall eat and tread down the sling stones. The sling stones represent the enemies slinging the stones at them. They're not just bouncing on pebbles here. They're walking over their enemies, so to speak, and then they eat in celebration. It also says that uh, they shall drink 
and roar or, or make noise as if drunk with wine. That's not to promote drunkenness. It's simply a poetic way of saying that a party will be happening in light of God's victory. And also on a number of occasions in Scripture, God's victory over His enemies is described in terms of sacrifice. Uh, In other words, when God goes out with His sword, His enemies are dropping like animals in the day of sacrifice. It's a bloody mess. So for Zion to be full like a bowl, like the corners of the altar, means that God has so defeated their enemies that their bowls and their altar flow over with enemy blood. It's a poetic way of saying God will slaughter their enemies before them. He will give them his success in battle. Third, when God's people share in God's victory, they will experience his shepherdly care. They will experience his shepherdly care. Verse 16 says that on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. So this brings the picture of Israel's desperate condition uh, full circle because at one time they were like defenseless sheep. Okay, Every nation just devoured them and and even their own leaders within Israel are leading the the sheep astray. Uh, But now God was standing over them as their shepherd, saving them for himself. Uh, You know, as Psalm 23 would put it, uh, he was was making them to lie down now in green pastures, leading them beside still waters. The battle is over. Now, for us city folks, God's shepherdly care may not impress us all that much, but from the Bible's outlook on the world, God's shepherdly care is tremendous and something we all desperately need. I mean, sheep are dumb. I need guidance, just like we do. Rachel's dad will tell me stories of the sheep in Africa getting out on the road, and it doesn't matter how long you lay on the horn, they don't move. You've got to hit them with your bumper to get them out of the way. Isaiah compares human beings to dumb sheep when he says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We do what we want, in other words, instead of following the Lord's word. And more than that, sheep are vulnerable. They're vulnerable to being led astray by false shepherds, people who take advantage of you. They're vulnerable to attacks from predators. So whether it's because of our own rebellion or because of other people's rebellion, we're desperate for a shepherd to save us. God's people get perfect shepherdly care when they share in his victory. There's more coming on that in a a moment, but but for now, let's look at the fourth answer to our question. When God's people share in God's victory, they also experience His abundant blessings. His abundant blessings. One way that we see this is in the way that God's people will shine in His kingdom. Uh, Verse 16 compares them to jewels of a crown that shall shine on His land. Let's look at both of these images here. It's quite, it's quite common for the Bible to associate precious stones with the beauty of God's presence. Uh, we see this, we see precious stones in the Garden of Eden. 
We see them on the priest's breastplate when they minister before, uh, in the holy place, before the Lord's presence. We even see them associated with God's temple several places in Scripture, including, including the, new, the temple, the New Jerusalem in Revelation. The, these precious stones appear here uh, on a crown. But if we look at Isaiah 62, verse 3, we'll see that, that this crown is also in the hand of the Lord. So it's in God's presence. Um, Isaiah 62, verse 3 says that Zion would be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So I want you to hold that thought for just a minute. Precious jewels or stones in the present, in God's presence. Hold that thought. Uh, The land says they shall shine on his land. The land here appears to be the same land described back in chapter 2, verse 12. Because that's the last place that this same Hebrew word appears. Uh, And in chapter 2, verse 12, this is the land of the future restored Zion, where the Lord's presence, it, it so transforms his new city that everything becomes holy. Everything is reflecting God's glory. It's set apart to reflect God's glory brightly and fully. Remember, the glory of God is when God's intrinsic worth goes public. When the final kingdom comes, everything will reflect God's worth in this land. Well, these images of the precious stones and the future land, what they're doing is coming together here to say that in the final kingdom, God's own people will shine with the beauty of God's presence. He will be the true king, but the glory of his royalty will also shine from his people. Notice the connection. They will shine not because they have any intrinsic worth that makes them beautiful. What does it say? For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. They will shine like royal jewels because God's goodness and God's beauty radiates from them. They will no longer carry the shamefulness of their sins. All their shame will be replaced with his beauty. That's one abundant blessing. Here's another. The end of verse 17 says that grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. That might not thrill you that much. It's like, great, there'll be a bunch of grape nuts and grape juice. Okay. But we've got to understand the language of the Bible, right? That Zechariah is using the categories of the Old Covenant to speak of the future abundance of God's kingdom. He's, again, he's using old categories to speak of the future If Israel didn't have grain and wine under the Old Covenant, what did that mean? It meant they were under God's curse for disobeying Him. But when God's people share in His victory, one of the things that they will experience is a reversal of that curse. To possess the final kingdom would be to possess not a cursed land, but a blessed land. 
Um, so oftentimes you'll get language like in Joel chapter 2, verse 24, where the, the threshing floors, they shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. This was God's way of telling the people under the old covenant, it's going to be amazing. You won't even believe it. All the curses we over. So for the grain to prosper the young men and for the new wine to prosper the young women was for the prophet to be saying that the people's curse would be over. The curse that the law held over them would finally be gone and God would delight in blessing them abundantly. So there are the four answers to our question. Our initial question was, what does it look like when God's people share in God's victory? And we've seen that when God's people share in God's victory, they experience His protection, His success in battle, His shepherdly care, and His abundant blessings. But how might these things come to us? And what could these future hopes of it for Israel possibly mean for, any, uh, for, for my Christian life from day to day? Well, to answer the first question, we must recognize that God didn't promise these things to Israel in general. He promised these things to the faithful remnant in Israel and ultimately Jesus Christ, who is the singular true seed of Abraham. And if you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, then you are part of God's people too. Galatians 4 can even go to the extent of calling us the Jerusalem from above. And he's speaking to the church, which includes both Jew and Gentile alike. Hebrews 12 calls us the heavenly Zion. The only Israel that will share in God's victory is the true Israel united to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, regardless of what the Vatican announced last Monday. Are you familiar with what the Vatican said last Monday? That it is not necessary for Jews to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. That is hateful to the Jewish people, and it is heresy. The only Israel that will share in God's victory is the true Israel united to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you believe in Jesus, these are your promises as well. What then do these future hopes mean for my Christian life? I'll give you at least four. First of all, remember that in Jesus Christ there is always hope for sinners. You know, the holidays are a time of joy for many people. But the holidays are also a real time of struggle to hold on to hope for many others. You know, memories of, lo- uh, of loved ones who've, who've passed away, maybe even passed away around Christmas time. Maybe an illness plagues a family member, makes it hard for them to celebrate or others to celebrate with them while they are weak. There is trouble between members of the family. Your family maybe is financially strapped. Any one of these things can rob us of hope. But thankfully, we're no longer prisoners to our grief or prisoners to our hurt or prisoners to our illness or prisoners to our poverty when we are in Christ 
And we're not prisoners of our sin either. Because Jesus Christ has freed us through the blood of his cross. Hope has truly come in Jesus Christ. And just like Zechariah's listeners looked forward with hope when he comes to them with this message. Prisoners of hope. They're sitting in the cisterns, remember? And he comes to them. You're a prisoner of hope. Why? Because God. Just like them, we too can look forward with hope until Christ returns again to bring his final kingdom. He is our hope. That's true even in our fight against our own sin. The fight against sin at times grows exhaustive, doesn't it? John Newton described it in his song, I, I, I Asked of the Lord. And he says, I hoped that in some favored hour at once, God, God would answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe. He crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and he laid me low. We feel this. We feel this in our battle against sin. But our passage reassures us that there's always hope in Christ. We're no longer prisoners to our sin because of Jesus' cross. And more than that, I would like each of you to take a look at verse um, 16 once again. These words, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. And I want you to, I want you to look at your picture if you are in Christ. That's a snapshot of you in the kingdom of God. God took your picture and kind of rewound and put it here for us in the, took your future picture and put it right here for you in the scripture. This is what you will look like. God describes you here and he doesn't mention your filth and your shame and your sin. He describes your beauty and this is your hope. This is where you are going. So in light of that, in light of Jesus being our hope and in light, of the, in light of the call in verse 12 to return to the stronghold, let me say, let me call you to return in, in three further ways. Return to Christ as your only hope of true protection. Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sins and to satisfy God's wrath. Then he rose from the dead on the third day to conquer the grave. When you believe in Jesus, God protects you from God's wrath by giving Jesus in your place. He protects you from the fear of death by making Jesus victorious over the grave. He also protects you from Satan by dismantling Satan's two favorite weapons, guilt and fear. And when it's all said and done, Revelation 19 says that Jesus will come again and he will strike down the enemy nations before us at the final battle. 
So whether in this age or the next, Jesus stands as our protector. That means we must return to Jesus for protection. Return from what, though? Well, we must return from all of our false hopes for protection in this world. We must return from trying to protect ourselves from God's wrath through our good works. And instead, trust in Jesus' sacrifice as sufficient to protect us from the wrath to come. We must also return from seeking protection in what this world can buy us or what our hands can do for us. And I know I'm saying this to a people, me included in this mix, to a people who lock their doors, who have home security systems, and where it seems like a third of you have a concealed handgun license. I'm not making an argument against any of those things, but I am saying that in a culture that puts a whole lot of emphasis on personal security, that money can buy you, we need to check ourselves to see if our refuge is truly in the Lord and not in our alarms or in our pockets. We can also return from trying to protect our self-image in front of others out of fear of what they may think of us. Jesus already protects us by giving us a right standing with God. And if, he, if God is pleased with us in Christ, we don't need other people's approval or praise. We can also return from placing too much confidence in our nation or our politics or our own foreign policy. Only Jesus can provide true protection from our enemies. Even when facing an enemy like ISIS, our wise security measures can't be our hope. We must return to Jesus alone. He will protect our soul from hell even if they kill our bodies. That's Matthew 10. We can return from all kinds of things, all kinds of false hopes for protection and money and power and manipulation and healthcare and education. But we must, also, we must always return to Jesus. That's what sets Christians apart from the world. What sets Christians apart from the world is not that we don't experience fear or we don't experience worry or weakness, but that Christ is our protection in the midst of all those things. And we keep returning to Him. Something else. Return to Christ as your only hope for success in battle. We looked at how God will say will give His people success in a final battle uh, against our oppressors. The New Testament teaches the same thing, and but says uh, instead of Yahweh here in the Old Testament, it says it's Jesus coming on the last day to do this. Um, and one example uh, of this is Revelation chapter two, verse twenty-six and twenty-seven when it promises the church that Jesus will give success in the final battle over our enemies, he says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron 
as when earthen pots are smashed in pieces. So we will not lose. Justice will be done. And our oppressors will be destroyed. But that day of violence against our oppressors belongs in God's hands. He alone has the right to initiate that great day of wrath. And he alone will transform his people to handle such a day rightly. Until then, we can't do it. Therefore, as the New Testament also teaches, our present battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Before Christ will battle our enemies in the temporal realm, in this physical realm. He battled our greatest enemies in the heavenly realm. When Jesus went to the cross, He took on the world, the flesh, and the devil, and He won. We enter this battle too when we become a Christian. But we fight from a place of success. Not our own success, but Christ's success. Our own success in the present battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil grows out of Christ's success. Already, Jesus gives us unity through the blood of his cross. That's a win. That's a win. It's important to the success in the battle of Zechariah 9, verse 13. The people have to be united in Zion. They're going to be wielded like the sword. And Jesus' cross doesn't just unite Jew and Jew into one kingdom. It has the power to unite Jews and Gentiles from all nations into one kingdom. Jesus also fits us with the right armor, too. Ephesians 6 says to put on the armor of Christ. Things like salvation and righteousness and truth and peace. We don't wield the sword of man to break down our enemy ranks. We wield the sword of the Spirit to convert our enemy ranks. It's the gospel of peace that pierces and penetrates the darkness. Even martyrdom isn't a loss, but gain. Revelation 12.11 says the church conquers the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You kill God's people as they're speaking the gospel, the volume of the gospel message gets turned up even louder. They lose. The enemy loses. So whether it's a battle against the world's temptations, whether it's a battle against our own sinful inclinations, whether it's a battle against the devil's people, we trust that Jesus' weapons are more successful than our own in this age. Jesus' way to fight in this age is through personal holiness and gospel preaching and sacrificial love, and it's a whole lot better than physical violence and financial power 
and clever politics. Not all of us, but some of us get stuck in sin and are subdued by the world because we're fighting with weapons of our own making. We fight our depression with food instead of faith. We fight our marriage problems with more hours at the office instead of more hours in reconciliation. We fight our misgivings with avoidance instead of confession and confrontation. We fight our hurts with fake smiles instead of transparency and truth. And we fight our spiritual fatigue with Netflix instead of prayer. We will not succeed in the battle if we fight without Christ and what He has given us to fight with. We must return from our self-made weapons and return to the one who gives us success in battle. Already He leads us with the cross and the resurrection and we will, He will finish the battle for us on the last day. Or one more... How does the promise of God's shepherdly care settle on you today? Are you a lost sheep? Have you gone astray, gone your own way? Has your sin led you off the path of life? Are you confused about where to turn next? God the shepherd sees you and he knows what's best for you. Listen to his word. Return to Jesus and find guidance away from sin's harm. Come to him and find one who died to bring you back to God. John chapter 10 tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Are you weary from enemy attacks? Have people taken advantage of you physically, sexually, mentally? Emotionally, this passage teaches us not to despair, not to lose hope. Jesus is a good shepherd. Return to him and find safety from your enemies. Return to him and find true care for your soul. Return and find one who can take away all of your shame and make you shine like jewels in the crown of God's kingdom. And even if this world kills you, Listen to Revelation 7. It leaves us with this hope. The people shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Return this morning to Jesus, your shepherd. Return to Jesus, your protector, and return to Jesus, who will give us success in the battle. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your grace and kindness. I thank you for the love that you've shown us by giving up your only son, that we might have life, that we might have hope, that we would look at the Shackles of our sin, those who are in Christ see them snapped, and we are free to return to our stronghold. Pray that all of us this week would continue returning to Christ for all these things we've talked about today, and where there's opportunity to speak 
to others who are still imprisoned. Would you put a word in our mouth and help us to speak as we ought to speak that they too might know the freedom we have experienced. In Jesus' name, amen.